Good morning, RCC. It, uh, it's so good be, to be with you uh, today. My name is uh, Ben Seaman, and I may break something. Uh, I have the privilege of serving as lead minister here at RCC, and we're so excited that you're here. If this is your first time with us, that's okay. This is my second Sunday here. Uh, we're new together. I'd love to, to grab your name uh, and just get to know you a little bit on your way out. You can find me in the, uh, in the cafe lobby area after service. I'd love to say hello and would love to hear how you, uh, how you found out about us. Uh, we are, uh, you really picked a great weekend to join us because we just kicked off a brand new teaching series called Enemies of the Heart. And uh, the big idea for the series is simply this, that who I am becoming is more important than what I'm doing. And if you weren't able to catch the, the, the service last weekend, you can hop on our website and listen to it, like I do with all my podcasts going to and from work, uh, just to catch up on it. And because here's, here's why we said that. Because at a young age, we're told that uh, to get where we need to go, we need to behave properly, right? Get, get yourself together, as my parents would always tell me, especially in middle school. Uh, but, but we learned last week that just because I, I exude good behavior uh, doesn't necessarily mean that my heart is in the right place. Sometimes deceitful people have incredible character on the outside, right? And so today, we're going to talk about the first emotion that keeps us from life in Christ. And today we're going to talk about guilt. And, and I asked a band to cover a song called No Hard Feelings by my favorite band, uh, the Avid Brothers, uh, which they, they killed it. I think half of our band can't even drive yet. I mean, our, our musicians are phenomenal here. Yeah. <laughs> and the, um, the, uh, the overall question, I'm sure there's multiple questions that Scott and, Avid, uh, Scott and Seth Avid wanted to ask in that question is, at the end of your life, before you close your eyes one last time, can you say that you have no hard feelings? And can you say that I, I'm ready to go, I'm ready to meet Jesus, I, I, have, no, I have no enemies? Uh, ministry and medicine are kind of, kind of uh, two uh, cousins, kind of in the same field. Uh, pastors and nurses and doctors are with families at the lowest point in their life when you find out that a loved one has stage four terminal cancer. We're also there at the highest moments of your life, uh, when, when you give birth to your first uh, child and, and you take them home, and, and we celebrate them here at the church. And in 2013, there was an article written uh, by Business Insider, and they interviewed a hospice nurse, and they asked her, what are, what are the top things that people regret or feel guilty about uh, that, they, that they confess on their, on their deathbed? And this is what she said. She said, of the top five things, she said, people want or wish that they had uh, allowed themselves to be happier. I wish I had more happiness in my life, however they wanted to find that. I wish I had stayed in touch with my friends. I wish I had better relationships. And, and I know we're a social, I know everyone lives online, but still, I resonate with that. that there's, there's just something about a face-to-face -face conversation that's irreplaceable. I wish I had the courage to express my feelings. I wish I hadn't worked so hard. That hits right out of our American culture, right? I wish I had more peace. And the number one regret or guilt that people have is that I wish I had the courage to live a life true to myself. I wish I had strength. I wish in my 20s I didn't do what my parents wanted me to do. 
Uh, th- that altered the school I went to, the person I married. Where I just wish that, that I had the courage uh, to do what I felt like the Lord wanted me to do. If guilt made a statement, guilt would say this, I owe you. Think about the totality of your life, okay? Your childhood, whether it was good or bad, your adolescence, which I think if anybody makes it through middle school, you should be given a medal. Uh, middle school, high school, young adult, uh, marriage kids, some of you have, have grandkids, great-grandchildren. If you look at back at the totality of your life, right now, today, would you have any of these regrets? Would you be able to say to your friends and your family and your loved ones, I have no enemies. I don't, know, I don't owe anybody anything. When we have debt, we think of or ask two questions, right? Will somebody pay for this, right? Sally Mae keeps calling me. She wants my money for student loans, right? (laughs) Will somebody pay for this? Or will somebody cancel my debt? When we think about these emotions, we think about those questions. Will someone take this this debt, this emotion away from me? Or will somebody cancel it altogether? Let let me me get your creative juices flowing. If, if, If guilt were a check that you owed someone, because guilt says, I owe you. That's our, that's our big idea for today. How much would your guilt check be? Now, to, to be more objective, take whatever you make an hour at your job, multiply it by the hours that you have thought about your guilt, whether you've done something to someone or someone has done something to you. How big would that dollar amount be? It's no wonder we ask, will somebody pay for this? Or somebody cancel this. But what if your guilt wasn't a debt, but it was a weight? No, I don't do CrossFit, okay? I know that's a big thing here. And what, what if every guilt that you have looked about like this, weighed like this, and you put it on like your proverbial backpack, right? How, how much would that backpack weigh? And how often in your life have you asked, I wish somebody would cancel this weight, or even take it away. It's too much for me to handle. We're going to meet a man today who is paralyzed with guilt. If you're familiar to the text, his name is, uh, his name is Zacchaeus. Uh, Zacchaeus was not a well-liked man. He worked for the government. <laughs> more, more, more specifically, uh, he was an IRS debt collector, and uh, what happened in the first century is the Roman government would simply ask chief tax collectors, of which Zacchaeus was, to go throughout different parts of the Roman government and take a band of tax collectors, spread them out, and knock on your door. And they would, you would open the door and they'd say, you owe the Roman government this percentage of your yearly wage. And if you couldn't pay for it, you would often have to sell your land, uh, your cattle, Um, or even your children to the Roman government or the Roman army so they could pay the debt and have it canceled. The questions we ask today are the same questions that are asked back in the first century. But something gets a hold of Zacchaeus. And I want to explore this with you today. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Luke chapter 19. Uh, If you're new to church, that's fine. We'll we'll have the scriptures on, on the screens and you can follow along. Luke chapter 19, verses 1 one and following. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. 
He was a chief tax collector. So under Zacchaeus were like 10, 20, you know, uh, tax collectors, some turbo tax representatives, right? And if, and if Rome was in Boston, uh, Zacchaeus would be over Rockingham County and all of his, you know, his, his crony and his posses would go out through the different towns in Rockingham County knocking on our doors saying, you owe this much. And, and, and what made Zacchaeus not um, a, a great guy was if, if the Roman government wanted 40% of your of your uh, of your property of what you're worth, they the government would say if you say actually it's fifty percent or sixty percent you can take that off the top and keep it for yourself. So in verse three, Luke writes he wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, which I don't really appreciate that, uh, he could he could not see the crowd. So he ran ahead. This is a businessman. He ran ahead. This is in the Middle East. And climbed up a sycamore tree to see him, since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house uh, today. So he climbed down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, right? We call that in church uh, prayer requests. <laughs> he, he has gone to be with the guest of a sinner, right? We're doing that morality argument, right? Jesus' outward behavior, it's not proper. What are you doing? This happens all the time in the New Testament. It happens all the time today in our, in our context. So all the people saw him again. He's, he's eating with a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said, Lord, oh, maybe he has a better theology of the Jews that were following him already. Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor, and if I have cheated anybody out of anything... I will pay back four times the amount, which is an Old Testament reference we'll, we'll hit in a second. Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house because this man too is the son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. Now, let me ask you a question. What causes a man in a $3,000 business suit, a $300 haircut, wingtip shoes, to run anywhere. My wife and I love food shows. I just love food in general. And uh, Chef Zakarian, he's one of my favorite chefs, uh, he was doing a show, and there was a, um, there was a uh, contestant that was um, kind of really late in delivering the food. It was sort of a, a festival, and the, the deal was uh, the, the chef with the most votes would win. And Zakarian went to this one chef and said, I would like whatever you're serving, and the, the contestant said to Chef Zakarian, can you wait three minutes? And he looks at him and says, I don't, I don't wait for anybody. And he left and gave him a zero because food wasn't ready when he was there to eat it. We have this idea that important people don't run. They don't have to wait on anything. If they have the, the money, they can just call ahead or have their personal you know, uh, secretary call ahead and say, so-and-so's coming, we want a spot in the back, uh, we don't want to give autographs, don't let anybody bother us. Important people don't run. And even in the first century, like today, uh, running was uh, undignified. You, you don't run for anything. So let me ask you again, outward behavior, what would cause a man to run full steam ahead, to climb up a tree, hanging on a branch, knowing that he, if he falls, he, he's going to be engulfed by the people he just stole from. Good-looking guy, 
great suit, great shoes, great haircut, right? Self-made millionaire. What drives a man to run that hard after Jesus? Guilt does. Because what was going on here, inside of here, he could not handle it anymore. And just because you have a PhD in your field, and you're the expert in whatever you do, and you're more intelligent than, than Jesus, it, that, that doesn't mean that what's happening here is always going well. Zacchaeus, like us, thought that I owe Jesus something. That, that something about Zacchaeus, when he looked at Jesus, this homeless Jewish rabbi, oh, that guy, who doesn't have any money at all, who throws parties at other people's houses, drinks their wine and eats their food and then leaves, that guy can not only pay for my debt, but he can cancel it and take it away. Even the wealthy of us, the most good-looking, and this is a good-looking crowd, even those that, can, that we can afford the finest clothes, we don't think twice about where we go out for the, to eat on the weekends, even us, we're laden, we're burdened, with guilt. So what do we do? Well, friends, every emotion that we're going to talk about over the next, uh, today in the next three weeks, there's an antidote. There's a next step that we can take in our faith, okay? And and here's the antidote or the next step uh, if you are experiencing guilt. Confession breaks the cycle of guilt. Confession breaks the cycle of guilt. Notice what Zacchaeus did. He ran hard after Jesus, right? He climbed up a tree, fearing for his life, asking for forgiveness, to be released from the guilt that's weighing on him. And then Jesus says, hey, why why don't you come down, right? And and I'm sure he meant it, but probably also a PR move. Okay, I'll pay pay half of my life's earnings will go back to the poor, which is really theirs anyways because you stole from them. He's just trying to to even self-protect. But, but, but notice what he did. He, he confessed publicly. How, how is it? This is going to be a heavy question. I know I'm two weeks in, but I love you. It's a pastoral question. How can we go to church our entire lives and nobody knows what's going on inside here? Because we're okay showing up on a Sunday morning, but not getting connected in a small group. Not, not willing to share our lives with other people. And I want, I want to give you three benefits, I think three gifts, that what confession is all about. And I hope you find it life-giving. I hope you find it that when we talk about confession, you don't have to go to a religious person. You don't have to go to the minister on staff. You, you can go to your small group. We're all on, the, all on this journey together. So th- there are three gifts, my friends, that are given to the Christian should they want to break the cycle of guilt with confession. And the first one is this, that confession invites me back into community. So what, um, what Zacchaeus was talking about when he was freaking out and his enemies were around him, he said, I'll pay back everybody back. He was referring to Numbers 5, 6, and 7. And this is what uh, Moses writes in Numbers 5, 6, and 7. This is the Lord talking. Say to the Israelites, any man or woman who wrongs another in any way and so is unfaithful to the Lord is guilty and must confess the sin they've committed They must make full restitution for the wrong they have done and a fifth of the value, that's what Zacchaeus was talking about, to it and give it all to the person that they have wronged. Zacchaeus wanted forgiveness, but Zacchaeus wanted friends. 
Zacchaeus wanted relationships. And, and we, we can't come alongside each other if we're never doing life with each other, right? I mean, this is a great facility. It's a great, great worship center. God's got some big plans for us. I know he does. I've been talking to a lot of folks here, and over the next two months, I'm going to set up meetings with some ministry leaders just to kind of see what the soil is like around here. Uh, this is a great facility. It really is. But if we're not willing to sit face-to-face with each other, we're going we're gonna to carry the weight of our guilt throughout our lives. And, and, and we'll, we'll die, sure, and we'll go to heaven, no, no, no doubt, but we will miss out <laughs> on the freedom that Christ had. We, we just have to make a decision as, as a church. Is, is, is RCC a place where a, a very wealthy businessman can come and say, I'm broken, can I find community here? I, mean, I can't, I mean, I want that, but, but we have to decide that as a, as a church, as a community. Can someone like Zacchaeus come here and find community? Uh, when I was uh, back in uh, Illinois, um, we, we were doing a sermon series on forgiveness, and Jim Power, our lead pastor, phenomenal guy, husband, leader, just, just top-shelf guy, really challenged our church to have a conversation with somebody that we feel uh, guilt over, whether they did something to us or, uh, or vice versa. And I'll never forget, there was this one lady uh, in, at the campus that I was at. I was the campus pastor there. And she said, Ben, I, I'm going to really try and do this. Uh, it's been 20, 30 years since I confronted this guy. Uh, he, uh, he abused me uh, when I was a young girl. And he's a family member. And I, uh, I, just, I just I blocked it out. Um, and so I said, okay, I'll, I'll pray for you. Um, I'll give you the courage. And it's one of those things, as a, as a pastor, you pray that people will do that. That's a really hard step, right? I, I appreciated the courage. And, and, and I, I was hopeful that she would do it. And the next Sunday, she grabbed me. And she said, I got to tell you what happened. I, I, I was able to take him out to coffee. I looked him in the eye and I said, I'm going to name what you did to me. And I'm going to claim that that guilt will not dominate my life. And I forgive you for what you've done to me. And I said, how, how did he take that, man? That's a public place. He just started crying. His tears came flowing out of his eyes because he always wondered what I was up to. He always wondered and prayed that I could recover from that as much as he is trying to experience freedom on his own. Half the time in the, in the, in the church world, friends, a, sim- a simple conversation, I know that's an extreme example, I know that's an extreme example, but half the times a simple conversation can simply bring people back into community. I mean, I mean n- notice what Jesus says, or John the Baptist says in Mark 1, 4 through 5, um, oh, I, oh, pump fake, I missed that. Let me, let me quote Jim here uh, from uh, my lead pastor from Richwoods. He says, every person uh, has scars at the hands of somebody else. This is what Jesus says in Matthew 5, 23. Sorry about that, guys, in the back. Therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar and, the, uh, at the altar, and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go to that person and be reconciled to them, then come and offer your gift. See, Jesus cares so much about community that he doesn't care how much offering you give every Sunday or how often you partake of communion uh, if you're not willing to have that conversation with somebody. Like, like that's how important that is to Jesus. Because we talked about just because good behavior is seen on the outside doesn't always reflect what's actually happening on the inside. So, Confession invites me back into community, but also, secondly, confession invites me to change. 
Notice what John the Baptist says in Mark 1, 4 through 5. And so John the Baptist appeared to the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him, confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. Notice what Peter says in 1 Peter 3, 21. This water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also, not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clean conscience towards God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. One of the things that we carry when we carry guilt is we wonder, can we have a community that will love us for where we're at, and can we actually change? And, and that's what Zacchaeus wanted, right? He, he, was, he, he ran after Jesus. He's willing to say, half of my, half of my earnings can go to the poor. If, if, I missed, uh, if, if I took advantage of anybody here, as, and I'll go look through the Roman records, I will pay them back more than what the Old Testament is asking them to do. I love what Andy Stanley says in the book, Enemies of the Heart. Your public confession is evidence of a changed heart. Uh, one of my good friends was in our small group, my wife and I small group, and we met, uh, there's about three of us that would meet consistently, and people would come and go because we'd raise up small group leaders, and they would start their own groups, and it was really kind of a beautiful thing. And uh, one of my friends said, I, I have to tell you something. Great, that's what small groups are about. Uh, and they said, I, I'm, I'm really stressed out. And um, I've, I've become kind of dependent on alcohol. And it's gotten to a point where um, her, her, her husband's sitting there that, that I'm hiding it from him. And you can start, the tears are starting to stream down his eyes, in, in her eyes as well. And, and she said, I, I, gotta, I gotta keep, I, I need accountability. I, I wanna change, I wanna do something different. Let me tell you something. We had met for three years, but that moment was a game changer the rest of our small group experience. Sure, we got questions, we, we read the Bible, but we wanted to be with each other. Let me tell you something. When someone is willing to have the courage, the guts to say, this is where I'm at in life, will you come alongside me? And a group responds in a positive light, Man, life change happens, and life transformation is incredible. Uh, Dr. Henry Cloud, in his book, Boundaries, which I would highly recommend, would say that everybody has burdens and guilt, right? Or, I'm sorry, everyone has a load and a burden. Now, a load, I, I can't help you with, right? Your load is, is your responsibility, right? You, you have to go to work if, if you want to pay the mortgage. You've got to feed your kids, you know? <laughs> Parents got middle school, high school kids here. They, they, they never stop eating. Uh, you, you, got, you got to handle your business, right? That's, that's not what we're talking about. That, and that's not what my friend in the small group's talking about. She says, I don't, I don't have a load. I, I have a burden. I have a burden. And I need help carrying this. And this is the benefit of community. In Galatians, Paul says this, carry each other's burdens, and in this way, you will fulfill the law of Christ. I can't go to your job. You probably don't want me to. I can't go to your job and work your job, but I can't come alongside you. We can create a culture where burdens are shared, where there's accountability, there's love, there's grace, and there's truth. And, and, and people can find a place where no matter how heavy my cinder block of guilt is, I have a community that loves me no matter where I'm at. Thirdly and finally, one of my, one of my favorite pictures, wow, one of my favorite pictures 
of confession is that confession gives me, I should try CrossFit, confession, uh, confession gives me more confidence in my prayer life. This is huge, friends. This is, this is a game changer. Because in 1 John, John writes this, My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. Okay, so, so we will not be locked into the cycle of guilt. So this is a big, big deal, right? Pay attention, lean in. If you fell asleep, wake up. This is a big deal in our Christian development, our spiritual walk with the Lord. I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, because we're human, we have an advocate, a defense lawyer, uh, with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sin, not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. So let me give you a picture of what John is talking about in this text, okay? Um, Sin is communicated, especially throughout the New Testament Romans, as economical, right? You have a debt that you have to pay, or someone has to pay for you, or cancel it, right? And so John is describing our prayer life in sort of economical judiciary terms, where he says, when you pray, your prayers go up to heaven, sort of into God's courtroom. Now, if you're like me, you've probably thought in different seasons of your life, maybe you're in one now, what's the point of, what's the point of praying, right? I know I should, that's what a good Christian does, but I, I feel like they don't even go past the ceiling. But John says that they go much higher than the ceiling. They actually go up into heaven, and John says there's a judge, God the Father, and there's our defense attorney, Jesus Christ, and then there's a DA, Lucifer, right, the accuser. And when John says we pray, the judge considers our request. And we're talking about specifically, so we're not talking about, um, God, can my daughter have a good year at school, which is important for families, for sure. But what we're talking about is being relieved of guilt. So when your prayer life goes into the courtroom of heaven, so to speak, the judge is considering your request. Should we forgive this person, right? They became a Christian at RCC, they were baptized, but should we forgive them now. And this, this right here will change the trajectory of your spiritual life, not only if you believe it, but if you put it into practice. Because time and time and time again, the number one thing that I hear, our staff hears, our elders hear, small group leaders hear, if you've been following Jesus, you've heard this all the time, right? I don't know if I'm actually going to go to heaven because I'm not good enough. All the time. That's the tension of being human. That's the tension of believing that there's a grace and a love out there so beautiful, so strong, so big, that it's hard to believe that because we don't experience that in our lives to the magnitude that God provides. So when our prayers go up into heaven in the courtroom, the Father is considering, should we forgive this person? And Jesus looks to the judge and says, yes, my blood covers him. My blood covers, my behavior, I live the perfect life on their behalf that they couldn't live, judge. And then I died the death that they should have died because of their sin, because of their guilt. I did that for them. This person's forgiven. When you pray, you cause heaven to have conversations about you. Let me say that again, because half of you won't believe that. I'm still trying to believe it. When you pray, the Trinity, the Father, Son, and the Spirit have conversations about you. They get excited that you're leaning in 
to the Father, to the Son, to the Spirit with your guilt, instead of trying to lean into your good moral behavior. And so when you pray, you have, you're causing heaven to have conversations about you. And you're constantly being reminded, I am forgiven. And the cross is actually bigger than that, that one time I made a decision to follow Jesus and I got a t-shirt or whatever and, and then I moved on. No, you're gaining more and more confidence in Christ and your relationship. And the cross is becoming that much bigger in your life the more you pray, the more you have regular conversation and dialogue with your heavenly father. Friends, he, he's wild about you. A confession not only gives you community, not only gives you opportunity to change your life, but it grows your confidence in Christ. It grows your confidence that what he did over 2,000 years ago is still working in your life. You're still depending on it. Now, I, I will say this before I close. I, I'm not a counselor, uh, but I care very deeply about mental health. And so for some of us, our guilt is so deep that you may need to go see a counselor. That's fine. There's nothing, I'll tell you, as your lead pastor, there's nothing wrong with that. Okay, I see a counselor once a month, right? I work with you guys, right? There's, there's, nothing, <laughs> there, there's, there's nothing wrong with that, honestly. So if you're in counseling, if you're on medication, if you're trying to sort through what's been going on in your life and your past, that's okay. That's a good, healthy thing. Confession gives me community, the opportunity to change, and it grows my confidence in Christ. So let me give you two next steps before I pray with this idea that confession is the antidote to guilt. So if you have wronged somebody or somebody has wronged you, I want to encourage you this week to get it on your calendar. Set up a face-to-face conversation. If, it, if what happened to you was so deep, find other people or professional to talk through about how to set that up. And then second of all, if you've never given your life to Christ, if you've never been baptized, and you're here today, maybe for the first time, and you're like, I, I, I identify with what you're saying, Ben. Would, would you, like, uh, like Peter said, would you appeal to God with a clean conscience? Would you make that decision that want to give your life to Christ and be baptized? I would love to talk to you if that's you after our service. You can find me out in the cafe. God, I, because I'm really excited about the potential of this series that none of us have to walk alone. We have a community. We can be transformed, and we can grow our confidence in Christ. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for uh, your grace. We thank you that confession is the release valve uh, to guilt. We thank you that with you, we can always talk to you, that you're always interested in our personal growth instead of our perfection. Uh, Thank you for uh, just this service that has allowed us to take a pause, honestly, uh, in our week and to consider just how much you love us, uh, which is not dictated on our behavior. It's dictated primarily on the behavior of your son. And so he lived the perfect life on our behalf, died the death that we should have died, and we can have full confidence that when you look at us and we've followed your son, that we can be forgiven. Thanks, God, for a great church to belong to, opportunity to be transformed, an ever-increasing reminder that we can grow confidence in your cross. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.